Once again, to yet another episode of Gillen Roscoe's Bodacious Horror Podcast. I, as ever, am Mr. Roscoe Harold Vacant, and I'm joined once again by my dear friend and colleague Gil and co-host. Rokitansky. Gil Jebediah Rokitansky. So, so Jeb, Uncle Jeb, how the devil are you, my friend? I'm doing not too bad. I'm doing not that too bad. Well, that's, that's great news. Red, oh. Redneck translation there. Absolutely. Well, this week we've got a very special episode for you. Um, I would imagine that the majority of our episode is going to be taken up by our interview with Mr. Gregory Mank, the well-respected horror historian who's written a variety of books on the subject, and we're going to be talking to him later on in the show. But before we get into that, Gil, have you had a good week? How are you? I've had a not too bad week. I was in London. I was in that London. That London. That, My goodness. That London. I uh, I I went to that Camden. Uh huh. I went to that Alexandra Palace. Right, right. And I went to that my friend's house. There we go. So you've been to London, and now you know exactly what it's like. Yep, I've been to London. I know what it's like. Absolutely. Just, just keep your head down, you'll be alright. There we go. And we're referring, of course, to a song that Mr. Gil Rokotansky uh, dropped some sick rhythms sick on. Sick beats! <laughs> that nobody has heard. Alright, nobody has heard. It's not out yet. Right, okay. So, so that, that, uh... <laughs> that's something to look forward to. Is, uh, there we go. For your sick rhymes. You know, here's, this is where the, the hate 80s massive uh, sort of just advertising campaign begins is is me saying I'm on a song by the hate 80s where I'm rapping. This is where it starts. So Gil, have you managed to watch any horror films this week? I have watched a plethora of horror films. Uh, I, I actually... I I discovered that see if you can't sleep. Uh-huh. Watch Wolf Creek 2. <laughs> oh no. I was hoping Wolf Creek 2 would be excellent. That's really annoying. I was quite enjoying it, but it was very late at night. I am going to uh, give it another shot. It wasn't definitely should. It wasn't that it bored me to sleep. I think it was that I was sleepy and put it on. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> there we go. I, I did quite enjoy that one from from what I saw of it. <laughs> I don't think I was a massive is. fan of the, the original, to be honest. I, I the think the original's pretty good. It's, it's okay, but... Mm, it's, you know, it's, it's okay. You know, well, as far as Australian films go, I can't see past The Loved Ones and Mad Max. <laughs> Oh yeah, you can't beat the loved ones. Absolutely, you can't beat Mad Max. You got that wrong. There we go. Goodness <laughs> sake, 
Mad, can't beat Mad, Mad Max. Max, but he can beat a Rokitansky. Shut it. Mad <laughs> Max was the the first Australian film ever to cost over a million dollars. Wow. And it shows every one of those million dollars off in its awesomeness. Fantastic. What about you? Have you watched any exciting Furio? Yeah, I've, I've watched a couple, actually. I watched... Uh, <laughs> you're going to laugh when I tell you. I watched The Mortal Instruments, City of Bones. You told me this the other day because... Uh, yeah. Yeah, rather uncharacteristically. For, Hung out. For, for uh, this period of our career. <laughs> <laughs> Since we get, since we moved into separate houses, <laughs> we never even lived in the same house. We just used to sit in the same couch. And... Don't, don't destroy the, oh, the illusion. Yeah, but uh, yeah, you uh, you travelled up to visit me, and it was really nice. It was, it was, it was lovely. It was lovely. It was. Um, um, uh, what did we watch that was better than any of the films? Oh yeah, yeah, shoot them up. Shoot them up. Awesome, actually. Yeah. You actually sighed when I said, let's watch this film with Clive Owen and Paul Giamatti, where it there's just lots of gunfights, uh, and it's yeah. brilliant. I'm, I'm definitely not a kind of fan of action movies, but my God, that was a great, great film. It was so quick and so much fun. So yeah, that was a, that was a fantastic one, Kels. Well done, you. You think it's so quick, but I think it's like an hour and 27 minutes. Sure. Sure. You know, it just it seems sense. like it's the sort of film where they can't sustain this level of action for that amount of time. Absolutely. But they do. Like, every time a gunfight ends, you sit yep. there and you go, I've got just enough time to pull the kettle before the next gunfight begins. Yep. So I was going to say that the Mortal Instruments wasn't as bad as I expected it to be. Um, it, it was okay. Uh, certainly a, a cut above your kind of standard Twilight uh, type movie, um, but it's, it's unfortunately close to the kind of underworld style of thing. It's it's okay. It's worth a look if you're uh, in a relationship Bored. with a, with another person who likes terrible things. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> I'm not even else? touching that comment. <laughs> Uh, what else? Uh, the House at the End of the Street. Which so, is uh, one that I recommended to you. Yeah, absolutely. And I would I would suggest sticking with that one uh, because it gets good eventually. <laughs> shut, eventually. Your, shut your face. <laughs> and Jennifer Lawrence is in it, of course. And Jennifer Lawrence is in it. Absolutely. And I love her. Um, you want to kiss her. I do indeed. And Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell which was excellent, starring Peter Cushing. It wasn't excellent. I kind of overselling that there. It was, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was all right. It was your standard hammer fare. Uh, no, it was, it was okay. And also watched House the Wolfman because I don't deserve happiness in my life. <laughs> so did Sorry, you, I, did I you just, get... I'm just still thinking about Jennifer Lawrence and the Hunger Absolutely. Games. Absolutely. Because I actually, as I said to you the other day when we were browsing around the shop, uh-huh. I quite like the Hunger Games. Like, both films. You know, I mean, fair enough. The the old the old meme of uh, it's Battle Royale with cheese mm-hmm. kind of rings true to a certain extent, but it's nowhere near as bad as anything like Twilight. 
And the fact yeah. is that by the end of the second film, it becomes quite interesting. And now I'm just going, well, when are the next films coming out? Aye. You know, I've, I've... Oh... Then it just makes me think of Philip Seymour Hoffman. And then I'm sad again. Oh, I know. Because he hadn't, he hadn't finished filming. Uh, yeah. Of course. Of course. So, Greatest actor uh, of our generation. There we go. If you discount Eccleston, of course. Um, well, <laughs> lots, lots of actors are from a north. <laughs> exactly. Great line. Great actor. Yeah, um, Eccleston is great. But when, was the, when was the last time you watched something with Eccleston in it and you went, nobody else could play this part? Exactly. exactly. You know, I mean, to be fair, you could replace him with Gaza. Nobody'd care. Nobody would care. Paul Gascoigne as Doctor Who tur- turns up on an alien planet and rescues the heroine with a couple of cans of lager and a fishing rod and a chicken. Right, okay. So we're stepping away from that one, I think. Um, so, guys, we are probably going to just move very swiftly along this week uh, rather than procrastinating uh, and get straight in to our interview with Mr Greg Mank we hope you enjoy it um, and we'll see you on the other side Take a journey with the Phantom Eric as he explores the last 100 years of horror 100 films to be explored each one with the related themes actors and directors that made the last century of horror cinema so great Travel the world from Germany to Scandinavia, Italy to France, North America and everywhere in between, with no stone left unturned. The zombies are locked up, the vampires are asleep, and the prowlers have slain their last group of campers for the night. So take the hand of the Phantom American Lester Reaper, as this is one time travel experience you won't want to miss. Guys, we're back, uh, and it's a great privilege uh, to be joined by one of the most respected names in the study of horror history. Uh, a man who's contributed to all of the universal, uh, well, all or most of the universal documentaries that we've been discussing over the last couple of weeks. Um, a man who has done a lot of work in this field and has interviewed a range of the golden age stars uh, that we're interested in here um, and that's Mr. Gregory Mank. Greg, welcome to Gillen Roscoe's Bodacious Horror Podcast. Thank you, Gillen Roscoe. Great to be with you today. It's, it's an honour to have you. It's our pleasure. Well, thank you. <laughs> that sounded quite sarcastic. We don't mean to be sarcastic. He, it's just he just has that way. accent. <laughs> no, that, that, that sounded dripping with sincerity to me. So I... <laughs> I'll, I'll dial back the sincerity. <laughs> Try to get a middle middle ground there. So, Greg, thank you very much indeed for joining us. As uh, mm-hmm. we've discussed, we're in the middle of our uh, universal universal horror box set. We've been working our way through uh, the Blu-ray box set that's just been released, uh, going through the old documentaries as well as the newer documentaries that have been put through talking about the films and the themes and all that side of things and we thought it'd be a really great opportunity to get you on the show um, as someone who has done a lot of work in this area 
Um, so, Greg, could you possibly tell us about how you got interested in this particular uh, field of study um, and the, the whole world of horror history? Oh, gee, it goes way, way back. Uh, it goes back to 1957. Uh, I would have been six years old. and um, Oh, you look much the... younger than that. <laughs> You're the <laughs> well, same like age as my mum. <laughs> oh, you didn't have to say that, did you? Don't know, anyway, you don't know her today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh, yeah, 1957, six years old, second second grade, I guess. Um, yeah, and it was when the uh, the old horror films first came on television in the shock theater package. And the, the, I think the really strange thing about it was that um, I used to come up from school every day and watch a, a, a local television show hosted by a character called Officer Happy. All right, Officer Happy was an Irish policeman who showed the little rascals. Uh, short subjects, you know, the our gang comedies. And uh, he's a very good actor. His, his real name was Richard Dix, and not the, obviously the Richard Dix from the movies, but, but Richard Dix. And he was a very good actor, and he was a local actor, and he would dress up as Officer Happy with a handlebar mustache and his policeman uniform, and he would show uh, the Little Rascals. So at any rate, um, during that week, they started to show commercials for Frankenstein. Frankenstein was going to be on Saturday night, and uh, everybody on the school bus was talking about that, you know, that this was Frankenstein was going to be on, and this was this was going to be a phenomenon. Everybody was fascinated, and everybody was saying, "Do you think your parents will let you stay up to see it?" And so on and so forth. So um, my terrific parents actually let me stay up till 11:15 that Saturday night to see it. But when the show started, all of these old horror uh, packages had, um, you know, a host. They would have a horror host. Well, the horror host was Dr. Lucifer. And Dr. Lucifer was played by the same actor who played Officer Happy. Oh, no. So it, was kind of, <laughs> it was kind of a, 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 an attack on the system, you know, for a six-year-old to see Officer Happy, you know, dressed up in a, in a cape and a top hat and a beard and, you know, sitting in a coffin and, and, and acting spooky and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it, it was a shock to the system. And I didn't watch the movie. I, I chickened out. I, I couldn't take it. So, um, so I did not see Frankenstein that night, but the fascination remained. And um, a couple of weeks later, I saw Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And then, but the film that really kicked the goal for me was um, Son of Frankenstein. I saw that a few months later, and of course, uh, you know, Karloff as the monster, and Lugosi as Igor, and Basil Rathbone as Doctor Wolf von Frankenstein, and uh, Lionel Atwill as one-armed Inspector Krogh, and and his wonderful sets and the lava pit and all that stuff. I mean, it was just great. It was like a fairy tale for adults, and uh, I got hooked, and I stayed hooked, and. Um, Eventually, what happened was that um, after I uh, left college and uh, uh, was, was trying to find some, some work as a writer, I had been hoping for years that somebody would write a book about the Universal Frankenstein films. And in fact, it was strange because um, every year, like two or three times a year, I would have a dream that it was either Christmas or my birthday or whatever, and I'd open a present, and it was a book about the Frankenstein films that, uh, that I had always dreamed somebody would write. And it finally got to the point nobody else was writing it, so I thought, you know, what the hell, I'll write it. Um, <laughs> so, so I started the research, and of course I was very lucky because in those days a lot of people were still around who had worked on the film, such as you know, Elsa Lanchester and folks like that. So I uh, launched into it and did the research and wrote the book, and I've been working in that. Uh, that book was called It's Alive, the classic cinema saga of Frankenstein. And so I've been researching and writing and uh, having a ball with this stuff ever since. So did you manage to speak to Elsa Lanchester? 
I did, uh, and, and she was terrific. Uh, you know, it was funny because when I started writing the book, and this would have been, gee, this was 1979 that I got the contract, um, the person I wanted to speak to the most was Elsa Lanchester because I think she's Absolutely. just so fantastic in Bride of Frankenstein, both as Mary Shelley and as the bride, and she just seems to, you know, uh, epitomize for me all the, the crazy stylistic lunacy, you know, you know, was in that film particularly. And um, I thought, gee, it'd be wonderful if I could interview um, Elsa Lanchester about Bride of Frankenstein. So um, I tracked down an address and wrote to her, and by golly, she, uh, she wrote back and said, here's my private number, give me a call. And uh, I interviewed her, and then after the book uh, was published, um, my wife and I met her at her home in Hollywood. And she was just like you'd expect her to be. She was like this very nice, uh, charming witch. Uh, <laughs> 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 you know, she, uh, you know, she had the real, still had the real tasseled red hair and, and the wild eyes, and she had this real impish kind of sense of humor. And um, one of the things that I remember. Uh, very, very fondly about the, about the whole thing was that she taught uh, taught me how to hiss like the Bride of Frankenstein. You know, she she of course told the story about how she had based the hiss on the swans that uh, she used to feed in London at Regent's Park, and then she would launch into this fantastic, enthusiastic hissing, and she would say, "Here, you try it." And so we both sat there and hissed at each other for a while. So, um, so yeah, she was a uh, she was a doll. She was she was absolutely terrific, and um, that's one of my. Uh, Real special memories of this work was meeting and talking with Elsa Lanchester. And you mentioned there, Son of Frankenstein being really your introduction to this uh, this world. Is that one that still rings true for you? Would you say? I think so. I, yeah, I, I have. A, I, I really enjoy the film, and I think. Um, yeah, I, me I too. Think there's something about the, uh, you know, the whole feeling of that film, that whole epic. Mm-hmm. Uh, fairy tale aspect. It's kind of otherworldly as well, in a similar way to Caligari, or yeah, it does. Of... It has that whole. It, it's like you're going into you know, when when they arrive on the train, uh, you know, in the beginning of the film, Basil Rathbone and his family. Uh, it's you almost get the impression that you know the area that they're visiting, the, the village of Frankenstein, uh, that it's a whole otherworldly place. That you know the monster's legend has sort of warped the elements there. That you know it's. Uh, you know, it's rainy and it's foggy and the trees are all twisted and everything sure. is everything seems to have been warped, you know, by the by the legend of the monster. So, um, yeah, I still really I still really enjoy the film. I think it's I think it's a I think it's a ball. And obviously we've got in that film we've got the two main horror uh, horror stars of the early thirties, Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. And Absolutely. That, that brings us neatly on to uh, your Next book, which, well, one of your, is it one of your more recent books, Greg? Or, uh... Well, actually, that's a, that's a good question. It's actually both an older and a newer because ah, right. okay. I, did, uh-huh. I did it originally uh, uh, back in, gee, 1990, I think, was the first Karloff Lugosi book. And then, as often happens in this business, as soon as a book is published, it seems like an avalanche of new material suddenly shows up that it's too late to get into the book, but it keeps you know arriving at your doorstep. And uh, so I thought eventually I'll collect this and I'll do another, uh, an expanded version. So that's exactly what they did. The publisher uh-huh. Carlos said we'll do a, we'll do an expanded version of uh, of the uh, Carlos and Lugosi book. And we reversed the billing. We gave Lugosi top billing on the, on the new book. And, uh, uh-huh. and so it was the Lugosi and Carlos, the expanded story of a honing collaboration. So there were uh, so yeah, that one came along and there were a lot more. Um, Lot more, lots more information, lots more interviews, lots more pictures, lots more everything. Fun book and and, and very very interesting men. Of uh, you know very uh, uh, very emotional subject really writing about the two of them because of the um, 
you know, the very moving relationship uh, that they had. Sure. And I mean, before we were actually speaking about, um, well, we we discussed yesterday very briefly, Lugosi and uh, Karloff together and uh, well, the Val Luton scripted uh, body, body snatcher. Um, yeah. And you'd mentioned doing some interviews with re- regard to that. Is that right? It was Val Luton's widow oh, yes, that you'd yeah, spoken we, to? Yeah. Yeah, Val Luton, that book was, uh, Body Smasher was covered, of course, in the, uh, that was their eighth film they did together and uh-huh. their final one. Sure. And, um, of course, it's rather, it's rather sad to watch because, um, you know, Karloff had come back to Hollywood after this tremendous success he had had on the stage in Arsenic and Old Lace and uh, was really kind of in a catbird seat when he got back to Hollywood and he went to RKO on the special star contract and, uh, you know, they really designed the Body Snatcher specifically for him. Um, and of course, Lugosi was brought in basically as a in, in a featured role, uh, in which he's excellent uh, and and does a, a very um, you know very solid, credible, good, you know, straight character acting job as Joseph. Um, and but of course, Karloff is is magnificent. I mean, this is this is probably you know next to the monster. I think this is certainly the best thing he ever did. Many people think it's even better than the Frankenstein monster. His performance as the Bonnie Snatcher. So they were really kind of put for their last film. They were put on a rather uneven playing field, you know, because uh, Karloff has this big star role and Lugosi has a relatively small one, but they still have the magic together. You know, they still conjure up the, uh, the, uh, uh, the chemistry that they always had together in the movies and, uh, and work together very, very well. And it's very touching to see that, that last scene they have where, uh, where Karloff kills him and then eventually, you know, throws him into a brine vat and, uh, they come in and pull Lugosi's head up out of the brine. And it's, it's, uh, you know, you kind of get a lump in your throat. This is the last time these, these, um, these gentlemen are going to work together, you know, in a film. Uh, so yeah, yeah, that was a that was a, a, a fun film to research. Um, uh, and talked to a lot of people involved with that film, including the director Robert Wise, who of course went on to big things. And um, that was one of his earliest films, was The Body Snatcher. So uh, he had a lot of affection for it. It was funny when I first uh, contacted him about talking about it. I thought he'd say, "Well, you know, I don't want to talk about that. You know, I directed West Side Story. I directed Sound of Music. You know, what do you want to talk to me about the Body Snatcher for?" <laughs> But uh, but quite the opposite. He said, "Oh no, this is one of my very favorite films. Um, I, I particularly enjoyed the uh, the scenes of Karloff and Henry Danielle together. Uh, it was one of the um, you know it was, it was very very special film for me, and, and he um, he loved talking about it. Even though it it really is just a series of films he made for RKO, I I consider the Val Luton films to be a genre on their own, just because they stand yeah. out so much, and I." I just adore every single one of them. But earlier on yes. today, I did also watch The Black Cat because, you know, it's it's just a fantastic performance. You always forget it's only 65 minutes. Yes, yes. It, 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 and all those films were all, all you know, they were all very, relatively brief. Uh, they were all, you know, very inexpensive. Um, and they, but they all had, you know, they all had Luton, uh, who was in there pitching, who was a, you know, very, very enthusiastic man who had a very, very sympathetic a uh, uh, group of people working for him. You talk to the people who worked for Val Luton, and you know they all loved him. You know they all recognized him, what a sensitive man he was, and they they all recognized what he was trying to do to uh, you know to try to energize you know the horror film in new and novel ways. And yeah. um, they you know they really loved him, and they really loved working for him. They all had a ball you know working on his films, um, and um, 
so it's interesting. I, I, some of the some of the nicest people. It's interesting. Some of the nicest people I've, I've interviewed. They've all been nice, actually. But I mean, some of the particularly nice people I've interviewed are people from the Val Luton films. Um, you know, Robert Wise, Anna Lee, um, Elizabeth and, uh, Russell as well. Elizabeth Russell. Yeah. In fact, it's a funny, rather funny story about Elizabeth Russell. You might be interested in that. Uh, it it kind of gives you the idea of the power of the Val Luton films. And that is that years ago, Elizabeth Russell, who played the original Catwoman in Cat People, she's the, the woman you see in the restaurant who turns and says Moya Sestra uh, to Simone Simone and then walks out into the snow. And then she turned up again in The Curse of the Cat People and played you know, a much, much larger part as, uh, as Barbara, the yeah. uh, witchy woman who's in the, in the seemingly haunted house. And um, well, Elizabeth Russell came to a uh, horror film convention back in around 1990 and they showed the curse of the cat people um uh in her honor and uh, before they, they showed the film I, I sat with her and and talked with her and then they showed the film and then i was going to interview her afterwards in front of the group that saw the film well she sat there and of course this was at this point that movie was 1944 and this was 1990 so you figure that's what 46 years later yeah um and she's, uh, you know, she's sitting there, and we're sitting there in this dark room, and I'm sitting beside her, and, and she's watching the last few moments of the film where, you know, she's coming up the stairs, and she looks very scary, and she's scaring the little girl, and uh, the spooky music is playing, and they have this wonderful close-ups of her, and, and uh, you know, she's really quite a phenomena coming up that, uh, <laughs> coming up those stairs. She's got a striking look. That's... Yeah, those cheekbones and those eyes and everything. And, you know, and I'm looking at the screen and I look over at her and I'm looking at the screen and I look over at her right beside me. And she's like staring intently at the screen. She's absolutely motionless. You know, she's just like almost like hypnotized by watching herself from all those years before. And, of course, what happens is that, you know, the, uh, the parents run in in the movie and rescue the girl. And, and it, it ends very rapidly after, after those close-ups. Well, the movie ended. Elizabeth Russell got up. And she basically ran. Now, now she was an elderly lady at the time. She was probably in her mid-80s, but she ran. I mean, and when I say run, I mean, I actually ran. She ran out of the room. She ran down the hall. She ran down the stairs that were in this hotel building to the lower level. She ran across the, that area. She ran out the front door. Uh, she ran towards the garage. Um, <laughs> I was chasing her the entire time. <laughs> I finally, finally, that must have been some I image. Finally, it, it, it was something. You thought, what in the world is going on? There's this poor 85-year-old woman being chased by this man through. Yeah, uh, I finally caught up with her out of the garage. She finally stopped and turned around, winded, and and she didn't. She never really articulated what it was that had upset her, but but just in a few words, she seemed to indicate seeing herself. You know, all those years before. In that role, in that movie, you know, working for Val Luton, who she adored, uh, you know, it must have taken her back in time in such a way that it really, really spooked her. And when the lights came up, she just panicked. You know, she just took off. She like wasn't. I guess she wasn't really sure what was real or where she was or what was happening. And she did. She just took off running and ran out of the building. So the movie really, of course, the cat people really and truly uh, terrified her. Um, <laughs> and, Terrified me too. But I wasn't sure I was going to be able to catch her. <laughs> that must have been quite bizarre for her, though, because she would still have all the memories of being on the set and mm-hmm. conversations with everybody, some of whom would no longer be with us. 
and she's watching a black and white image of memories that she would have mm-hmm. in full vivid color. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. She's looking at herself and it's like a time machine. And uh and it just completely set her free. She just uh, she just went went tearing out of the building. So she was a lovely lady. She was a very, very nice lady and she was a lot of fun to talk to and she had a very and she had very little um pretense. You know, I mean if you would tell her how how good she was in those films, she would say, You really think so? You know, she was <laughs> She, sure. she was totally underwhelmed by herself on screen usually, but just something about that film, um, you know, really, uh, it, it got under her skin. And she took off. I mean, obviously, you've, you've done quite a lot of uh, interviews with people who are maybe that wee bit older, Greg, or, well, who definitely are a bit older, who uh, are looking back over their careers. Um, is there a certain kind of melancholy to some of those interviews that you've been carrying out? Uh, something of a melancholy. Uh, yeah, you know, it's interesting because I would have to say that I've been very lucky to talk to, oh, gee, probably over, a, yeah, definitely over 100 people over wow. the years. And most of them have been extremely nice, and most of them have been um, uh, very cooperative. Uh, you know, I, I really can't think of a bad experience with anybody that I've talked to. They were all, they were all great. Um, but uh, there, there were a number of personalities um, who I never was able to talk with directly, um, who were very, very sad folks. And I think that maybe the reason they ended up in horror films was because of the fact that they had a quality, a certain inner quality, sure. a certain inner torment maybe, uh, that worked on screen um, in those roles. An example would be Cullen Clive, who, of course, played... Uh, Frankenstein and Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. And Colin Clive was, I think, a rather desperately unhappy man. He was a very heavy drinker. He uh, managed to drink himself to death uh, when he was only 37 years old. Um, And um, when you investigate his life and talk to people who knew him, um, you know, you have this great feeling you wish so much you could have helped him uh, somehow. Um, And one of the very early interviews I had was with uh, the actor David Manners, who was then, of course, as the Wow, you know, the romantic hero in Dracula and and the Mummy and sure. um, the Black Cat, and um, his first film was Journey's End, which was directed by mm, James, James Whale, Whale of course, Colin Clive. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember David Manners talking at the time, and he said that um, uh, you know that that everybody in the company felt so badly uh, for Colin Clive because he was obviously very much the character he was playing in the movie. In Journey's End, the character he's playing is this. World War One captain who can't face the world unless he's been drinking uh, constantly in order to stand up to the insensitivity and, of course, in this case, the war that's waging around him. And um, that Clive was very much the same way, that he was uh, uh, you know, a very severe alcoholic and that, uh, as Stephen Manners said, his face was like a tragic mask. It was almost like a Jekyll and Hyde. He could be, you know, on, on the few occasions where he was uh, sober and, and friendly and everything, he was a very, you know, very nice sensitive, kind uh, fellow, and he loved sports, and he, you know, he loved animals, and he was, you know, a very, very nice guy. Uh, on the most of the occasions that they knew him for, during the time they were working in Hollywood, he was drinking heavily, and they said, you know, that he was almost, almost frighteningly bitter, and, um, uh, you know, they all wanted to help him, but he, he wouldn't accept it. You know, he just, he would reject any kind of, uh, any kind of help uh, that they would offer, a friendship or something. So there was some kind of 
some kind of pet devil, as the saying goes, in, in that man that was waging all the time. And um, it was very, very sad for him. The irony was it made him rather ideal for roles like Henry Frankenstein or like the part he played in Mad Love or, you know, some of the, you know, satanically jealous husbands he played in, in other films and that sort of nature. So it, it made him a very effective screen personality because I think audiences picked up that uh, that vulnerability in him, um, but of course it was a very tragic thing for him. And uh, another example, Helen Chandler, who uh, of course, is, uh, yeah, in Dracula, again from a very um, from a very young age was uh, was a severe alcoholic. And in fact, a new book I'm doing called The Very Witching Time of Night mm-hmm. uh, has an interview with her uh, sister-in-law, uh, okay. who knew her very well, was very good friends with her, and. Um, uh, it tells a very, very heartbreaking story about uh, about Helen and, and her problems with, with with alcoholism and and the fact that as she says she was you know the dearest, sweetest, kindest uh, lady in the world, but she was crushed at an early age by a very ambitious stage mother, and uh, that was the only way she could cope with the pressure was with the drinking. So um, people like that, like Helen Clive and Helen Chandler and and, and some of these folks who who end up in the films. Um, you know, are wonderful performers and great talents, but they have sort of that added dimension of tragedy, uh, real-life tragedy about them that I think kind of communicates itself to the people who are watching the movies even all these years later. Yeah, I uh, when I watch Colin Clive, he's one of the few people where, see when he does a, like, a dramatic grab of a table and looks all yeah. angsty, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't come across as being overly dramatic like you would expect from a film of that time when he does it there is like that sort of inner angst behind it so yeah, yeah it's just him yeah it just seems to be coming very naturally from him um and and in you know very very unique actor in that sense that uh, you're right he never he never gives the impression to me of being going over the top or or being stagey or theatrical it just all seems to be coming from someplace very deep inside of him um, uh, which uh, you know, which indeed it was. And of course, the the one time that it does go over the top, it was cut by the censors in most places, and it was <laughs> it was relevant for him to go over the top at that point. Sure, sure. You mean with *Us Alive*, uh, *Scream*, and *Frankenstein*. Yep. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, of course, you know, once you've once you've you know succeeded as he did in you know, creating the miracle he, that Frankenstein had created, you're going to go over the top anyway. So. <laughs> Now yeah, I know what it resist? feels like to be God. <laughs> I, I feel yeah. like that when I make a decent meal. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> Omelette Central. Yep, absolutely. Hold <laughs> it ever nice and then... My God! I have right. created this lasagna! I have become right. God! So, so while Light, we're... <laughs> lightning flashes and thunder rolls and there you are, yeah. <laughs> the oven while door we're... opens slowly. <laughs> I'm not saying anything about my hunchback assistant. Um, <laughs> so while we're, <laughs> Greg, while we're on the subject of Frankenstein, um, mm-hmm. I believe you've also uh, you've also conducted a few other a few interviews with, uh, with some some of the stars of Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, um, including Little Maria, and yeah. uh, and Valerie Hobson, of course. Uh, oh yes, yes, that, mm. that's that's interesting stuff. Yeah. Uh, Little Maria, Mar- Marilyn Harris. Uh, again, I think that's the most powerful scene in in, in all the Frankenstein. Absolutely, films, the scene that by the lake, and um, 
yeah, I was very lucky to become actually become quite good friends with uh, with uh, with her. And there was another sad story because she was a um, uh, she was adopted by a, a mother who desperately wanted a child she could put into the movies. And um, I, talk, I mean, talk about horror stories. She had just incredible horror stories about the fact that you know her her you know her mother beat her and tortured her and did, did dreadful dreadful things to her. If um, you know if she went to audition for a role and didn't get it, her mother would beat her. Um, uh, and, and of course, the story she told about Frankenstein, which was so ironic, was she said that when she went out to the lake, out to Malibu Lake, on location for that scene, she rode out in a in a limousine with Karloff, and uh, her mother came in a in a different car uh, to out to the location. And she said that uh, you know from the beginning she was just completely drawn to Karloff because he was so gentle and he was so nice and he was so so kind and you know he called her darling and and they had this immediate rapport and. Um, you know, she had much more of a rapport with, you know, the monster than she had with <laughs> her real-life mother, you know. And um, she said that they went out there to shoot the scene, and, you know, they rehearsed it very carefully, and it came time for Karloff to pick her up and, and toss her into the lake. And, um, you know, her mother was standing back behind the camera watching. And when uh, Karloff picked her up and threw her into the lake, her mother just screamed hysterically, throw her in again, throw her in again. <laughs> Uh, 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 and you know she she had to live with this and and I jeez think, Louise yeah really I mean I, I remember <sighs> sitting in in Maryland's um, uh, home out in in in, in near Los Angeles uh, years ago and she was talking about her mother and and I remember she said to me she said oh she was a witch and as she <sighs> said it she like a tremble just shot right through her I mean sure. even after all those years she still mm-hmm. you know shook and trembled at the you know, talking about the way her mother had treated her. So again, I think, I mean, I might bring this to the film at this point, but there always seemed to me to be kind of a great vulnerability about little Maria. I mean, sure. you just really wanted to protect her. You know, there was something about her that that you instantly liked and instantly wanted to protect her, which, of course, you know, is the is the, the whole irony of the scene with the monster. I mean, he obviously doesn't want to hurt her. He thinks exactly. he's playing with her. He doesn't mean yep. to drown her and so on and so forth. And yet this, uh, you know, incredibly twisted thing happens and he throws her into the lake. Um, but, but, um, Marilyn was a was a lovely, lovely lady, and um, you mentioned Valerie Hobson, uh, another one of my favorite performances uh, in all the horror films is, is uh, her Elizabeth in Bride of Frankenstein. I think she's great. I think she's just uh, she is over the top, and of course James Whale wanted her to be over the top, and you know she kind of seems like this hysterical Christmas angel, you know, in the movie. You know, she's kind of very, you know, very very effective in that in that way. And I remember talking to her, and um, she said. Um, uh, she was talking about her costumes, and she said, uh, she, "She said, you know, it was very funny. James Whale was very insistent that I wear nothing under my costume in Bride of Frankenstein. He said it was, it was his idea. She, he said, you know, you you must be stark naked under this dress. You can't wear any lingerie. You have to, you know, wear it that way." So now, of course, whenever I watch the film, that was always coming to my mind that story that she told me. So, but uh, be that as it may. Uh, <laughs> but she was a, she was a, a, a very uh, very lovely lady, and it was it was a real kick to talk to her because she had a great sense of humor and um, and uh, she was very into the spirit of the movie. You know, she talked about it uh, with great affection. She talked about how wonderfully effective Karloff was. She said he was like you know one of the great clowns, uh, you know, who who are so extreme in their makeup yet they make you cry, and how you know Karloff as the monster always made her cry. And uh, uh, she was. Uh, a lot of yeah, she was. Uh, it was very very cool to talk with her. And also in the Werewolf London, uh, in Werewolf alongside London, yeah. our friend Henry Hill. That's right, with our friend Henry Hill. <laughs> yeah, she. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, no, she had a, a very interesting career, uh, you know, because she had uh, she had that little uh, sojourn at Universal in 1934-35, and then went back to uh, England and became a um, uh, a really major star uh, in in uh, British cinema for a while. Uh, and so uh, she had, yeah, she had many, uh, many, many stories to tell. That's excellent. Okay, well, I think we'll have a short break there, uh, just to give us time to absorb some of those uh, great anecdotes. So we'll have a short break there, and then we'll be back with more Greg Mank. We'll be back after this. Looking for something to fill that deep, horrible, dirty void inside? Then look no further than the podcast Under the Stairs. Join your host, Duncan McLeish, and guests as they dissect horror films, old and new. No film is too gory. No film is too scary. No film is too violent for the podcast Under the Stairs. The podcast Under the Stairs can be found at podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com or on iTunes. The podcast Under the Stairs is a proud member of the League of Extraordinary Podcasts. To avoid fainting, keep repeating to yourself, it's only a podcast. It's only a podcast. It's only a podcast. Okay, guys, and we're back to discuss The Invisible Man. Once again, we're all joined by Mr. Greg Mank, and um, we're going to discuss The Invisible Man from 1933, uh, directed by the one and only James Whale, written by R.C. Sheriff, and starring Claude Rains as Jack Griffin, Gloria Stewart as Flora Cranley, Henry Travels as Dr. Cranley, William Harrigan as Dr. Kemp, Una O'Connor as Mrs. Jenny Hall, and Forrester Harvey as Mr. Herbert Hall. Um, and brief synopsis, a mysterious stranger, his face swathed in bandages and his eyes obscured by dark spectacles, has taken the room at Cozy Inn in the British village of Iping. Is it Iping or Iping? I don't remember. Iping? Iping. Iping. Let's go with that. That sounds good to me. Never leaving Mm -hmm. his quarters, the stranger demands that the staff leave him completely alone. Working unmolested, steady, with his (laughs) test tubes, the stranger does not notice when the landlord inadvertently walks into his room one morning, but she notices that her guest seemingly has no head. (laughs) That's not much of a synopsis. This is a a plot. Yeah, um, that's the plot of the book. Why don't you just say, it's Frankenstein... But this time you can't see the monster. Okay, that's <laughs> that would hook him. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. well done. That's that's basically the Invisible Man, as it is Frankenstein, but you can't see the monster. Mm-hmm. But we don't cool uh, movie. We, yeah, we don't need a massive synopsis for it. He's uh, he's locked up in a a little hideout, trying to do his little experiments, and then you've got Una O'Connor who just screams a lot. Well, it is. It's a very, very strange movie. Uh, it's it's almost as much comedy as it is a horror film, isn't it? Yeah, I I think that's what pulls me out of it sometimes. Is it seems seems more ealing than universal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, you know, it it's it is unique. I mean, it it's it's interesting. When I, we were talking earlier about Shock Theater coming on in Baltimore, I remember these, of course, always show the horror films. Um, at 11.15 on Saturday night. And I remember all of a sudden at one point they showed The Invisible Man in the middle of a Saturday afternoon. It was the only horror film in the package that for some reason uh, that television channel, Channel 11, uh, saw fit one day to actually show it uh, 
during an afternoon. So I guess they figured it had some sort of different um, energy or appeal within it than the other horror films that it would, you know, it actually could belong in, in uh, family viewing time on a Saturday afternoon, where the other ones all had to be consigned to this late night uh, arena where everybody saw them. But um, but would the Abbott and Costello yeah, ones have been shown in that time period, or would they have been shown in the evening? Oh sure, yeah, yeah. They, Abbott and Costello are everywhere. They're they're hard to escape. But uh, no, but they're but they're uh, like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and stuff like that. Were they the afternoon, like the Invisible Man, or yeah, they were afternoon. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. I remember the first time I saw it was uh, yeah, it was a Sunday afternoon, and I didn't even know the movie existed at that point. I was a little kid. And uh, my brother ran and got me and said, you got to see this. And we came in, and there they were. And, um, of course, that movie was, you know, phenomenally popular uh, once it hit television. All that, you know, it was, you know, almost every, every kid at school had seen Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein ultimately several times. Yeah. And knew the lines and everything and, and uh, had, a, had a lot of fun with that movie. And it is, it is a, it's a great picture. It's a real romp. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I remember seeing that in the afternoon, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and The Invisible Man. They were the only two. That uh, that were able to be shown uh, in the in the uh, channel's decision uh, at a time when uh, you know little kids might be uh, likely to be in front of a television screen. Absolutely. But, so yeah. so, so you, you Greg, you've been working uh, your most recent work uh, and the most recent release that you've you've had as the magic image. Uh, a magic image book of the Invisible Man. It presents the screen pulley. Uh, the original screenplay that appears to have been uh, scanned nefariously, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, as well as a very interesting interview with uh, Jessica Rains, Quadrain's mm-hmm. daughter, and a full production history over, is it eight chapters? I don't remember offhand now, but it's over a variety of chapters detailing uh, the, the production from inception uh, to completion, and then giving a bit of background to the lives of the, the cast and crew. That's right. Mm-hmm. Very colorful history. You know, it, 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 it's, it's, it's kind of cool. Universal bought the rights to uh, The Invisible Man, which was actually uh, an 1897 book by H.G. Wells. They bought the rights to The Invisible Man while Frankenstein was shooting. That would have been in um, September of 1931, and they you know, kind of put it on the schedule for, a, you know, for another horror production. And it was an interesting thing. They gave H.G. Wells script approval. Uh, you know, he had to approve whatever script they came up, came up with before they could proceed with the movie. And at the same time, uh, the studio bought the rights to another book called The Murderer Invisible by a man named Philip Wiley, who uh, had written a 1930 novel called Gladiator, which eventually inspired the comic book Superman. Well, but anyway, in Wells' book, The Invisible Man had become invisible because he was an albino. And he was facing, you know, social prejudice. And in the Wiley book, in *The Murderer Invisible*, uh, he became invisible because he was large and monstrous in size. And so both characters uh, in both books basically wanted to hide from the world, uh, which is why they, you know, found this um, invisibility uh, gimmick. Um, so Universal announced the *Invisible Man* as a star vehicle for Boris Karloff after he became a sensation in *Frankenstein*. *Frankenstein* came out late in 1931. Films an enormous hit. Universal's making a pile of money, and Karloff's suddenly a worldwide star. So they're saying, "Well, we're going to put him into the *Invisible Man*." But the problem was the studio couldn't develop a script that worked, or that H.G. Wells would approve. Okay, so I mean, 
they had all kinds of people working on it. They had John Huston, you know, who later scripts and directs the Maltese Falcon. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> he works on a script for The Invisible Man. You know, Preston Sturgis, who later writes, you know, satires like The Great McGinty, he works on a script for The Invisible Man. They have all these different scripts. The scripts, you know, they have an invisible octopus. They have invisible rats. They have a, a, a script in which Grand Central Station blows up. I mean, they have all this crazy stuff going on. And, of course, every time they send one to H.G. Wells, he says, you've got to be kidding, you know, you're, <laughs> the way, uh, you know. <laughs> you're, not, you're not putting, you know, uh, my title on that r- ridiculous script. Yeah, where's the satire? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, it's going to be the hilarious comedy ever, going to put W.C. Fields in it or something, you know. So it, it's interesting that among all these scripts, James Whale, you know, himself, who, of course, had directed Frankenstein and was said to direct The Invisible Man, you know, he wrote a script. Uh, he wrote it, he decided, you know, why not? Everybody else is. I'll write, you know, a script for The Invisible Man. And he wrote this, you know, crazy, over-the-top story about an invisible man who lives under a cemetery and... Um, the woman he loves has left him and entered a holy sisterhood, and and she's about to take her sacred vows in a cathedral, and uh, the Invisible Man comes into the cathedral, and we see a knife floating around on the altar. It's the Invisible Man, you know, holding the knife, and the knife's floating around the altar, and he, he stabs the woman, as you know, before she can take her vows, or maybe right after she takes her vows, uh, and, and then he stabs himself. And, you know, it was this really crazy, delirious uh, story, and H.G. Wells said, You've got to be kidding again, you know, or not. <laughs> Send that back where it came from. Um, so, so the problem was they couldn't get a script uh, that was faithful to the book and that H.G. Um, Wells would give the green light for to, or them to proceed. So eventually what happened, it, it seemed to get worse and worse because in late 1932, uh, Paramount Studios had filmed the Island of Dr. Moreau, which H.G. Wells, of course, had written, and it came out titled Island of Lost Souls. And, of course, that has Charles Lawton as Dr. Sure, Moreau. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, Beta Lugosi as the Sayer of the Law. And this movie came out without H.G. Wells' script approval. Sure. Right? They had never, it had never rested on Wells' giving script approval. So Paramount had gone on this whole new crazy pre-code direction, uh, and they had the Panther Woman in it who, Absolutely. of course, is not in the novel. You mentioned in, in your book that there was actually, that Panther Woman was perhaps a play on someone who H.G. Wells had had dated earlier in his life. Is that correct? Yes, yes, that he was uh, involved uh, in, in a love affair and that this uh, woman referred, um, they had pet names for each other, and that uh, she called him Jaguar and he called her Panther. Ah. And um, so... Possibly somebody in Hollywood caught on to this uh, gossip, <laughs> and all of a sudden in the script for Island of Lost Souls, you have the Panther Woman, all right, and um, played by Kathleen Burke, who wins the role. Uh, 60,000 contestants try to get the part of the Panther Woman, and she wins. And uh, the story is that Charles Lawton, as Dr. Moreau, wants to mate Kathleen Burke as the Panther Woman with a human male, all right? And H.G. Wells is absolutely appalled. I mean, he can't believe, you know, what Hollywood has done to his story. Sure. You know, what a burlesque show they've turned his, his story into. And um, so, you know, he raises hell. Uh, Great Britain rejects the film. It, it, it's a debacle. And um, it seems very unlikely that H.G. Wells is ever going to approve anything Hollywood ever adapts again, you know, from his work. So it looks bad for The Invisible Man. But miraculously, perhaps Universal did it. Um, 
uh, as you mentioned, the, the, the writer R.C. Sheriff um, uh, wrote a new script. He uh, stuck carefully to Wells' book, um, and he kind of caught the spirit and power you know, of the story. Griffin isn't an albino uh, in the script, but he's poor, and he's in love, and he's consumed with doing something great as a scientist, and he wants to win the adoration of the world and the adoration of the woman he loves. And, and um, of course, the tragedy is that this invisibility drug that he finds also drives him totally mad and completely insane but um that script actually clicked and um hg wells read it and said uh, to everybody's amazement yeah fine go ahead Uh, you have my approval uh you can you can you can proceed so uh they actually beat the script problem after you know all these different drafts and after the invisible octopus and invisible rats and all these other all these other areas that they uh managed to get off to in tangents but they they kept Um, an invisible cat though well, I, I, is there a... <laughs> well, there's, there, is a, there is a cat, but then they make it, they make yeah, it, they they make it, it invisible by spraying it black whilst it's... They spray him on the wall, that's whilst right. Whilst it's against... They spray him on the wall, I feel right. so sorry for that cat when you see that scene in the film and there's the guy spraying like the, the black paint yeah. and it's, there's just this poor little yeah. cat sitting on the wall. Yeah, yeah. I, I imagine the SPCA probably has something to say about that too to, to the producers about you know about how they can't uh, you know you can't do that to a poor cat. Um, so of course Universal made the black cat shortly after that. So I guess they were they were hell bent on being nasty to cats at the time. <laughs> but it's, uh, it is the uh, white cat it's, it's, from the Invisible Man that plays the black cat in the Black Cat. Yeah, <laughs> you know, cats getting a following in those days in Hollywood. But uh, but you know one of the one of the funny things about about the Invisible Man is that once they finally got the script right, they didn't have an actor because um, uh, Boris Karloff, of course, as we mentioned, had been announced all this time about being in the film, uh, had gone to England uh, to make a film starring the film called The Ghoul, and um, it's the first time he's back in England since he left in 1909, and he's having a great time and having fun, and they wanted to stay to make another film, and he really wants to because he's having the time of his life back in his back in his homeland again. And uh, Universal says, no, absolutely not. You have to come back. We finally got the script ready for the Invisible Man. You have to come back and make the Invisible Man, you know, get on the first ship you can, get back here in a hurry. So, um, so you know, Karloff says goodbye to all his friends in England, gets on the ship and comes back, and he arrives in, in uh, America, and in, just in time for the Hollywood Reporter to uh, have the story saying that uh, Universal has decided they want to star William Powell uh, as the Invisible Man. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with William Powell. He later played the Thin Man. In the movies, very urbane actor with a mustache, very mm. sophisticated, very you know witty, kind of a champagne glass, uh, you know, toasting kind of uh, a comic uh, glamour actor. And uh, they, I guess, they figured that at this point the movie was going to be pretty much a comedy, and William Powell had good comic timing, so you know they'll give it to William Powell. So Karloff, of course, you know, came all the way back <laughs> from London basically for nothing uh, for Universal to say, "Oh, we don't want you. We want William Powell." Um, then, of course, the laugh was on Universal because William Powell said, no, I don't think I want to do it. And so then they had nobody uh, to play it. Um, Karloff left the studio because he got in a fight with them about his salary. They were supposed to increase his salary, and they didn't. So he walked off the lot. Uh, James Whale thinks a little, little bit for a while about casting Colin Clive in the role. But then he uh, says, no, I think I know exactly who I want to play this part. And, of course, we all know who he's talking about. And that's, of course, the great Claude Rains, yep. and, um, who at that point had only been in one movie in England in 1920. Uh, you know, was by no means famous uh, to the uh, American 
movie public. Um, but uh, Rain Snowing from the London Theater, it's, it's funny. He, he remembered him particularly from a play in 1923 called The Insect Play. Oh, yeah. I saw the posters that you reproduced in, your, in the book for that. Yeah, there's a reproduction of a, of a, of a, of a poster, a newspaper cartoon of, sure. of it. And in it, um, Reigns, uh, in one of the acts, Reigns played a parasite, all right, in the insect play, he plays a parasite who eats a larva. And then he hiccups you know, in enjoyment that he really enjoyed eating this larva. And the larva was played by Elsa Lanchester. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> The Future Bride of Frankenstein was also in that play. We all remember her from life. that as well. <laughs> yeah, small world in the theater. So, um, so uh, yeah, so Parasite, who, you know, Claude Rains the Parasite, who eats also Lanchester as a larva. But anyway, uh, we all remembers this, and, and Rains is working in New York at this point in the theater, and he had previously made a screen test um, uh, for motion pictures that was so bad that the rumor goes that they used to uh, show Rain's test at Hollywood parties, you know, where the guests would all laugh at it. You know, I mean, it was like, if you want to see the worst screen test in the world, watch this. They put on Claude Rain's screen test, and everybody would sit there and just howl with laughter, you know, at how bad the test was. Not because he was a bad actor, of course, but because he just simply didn't know how to, you know, adjust uh, what he was doing on the stage for a camera. Absolutely. So far too so, over of the top. At this point, yeah, way, way, way too, way too much. So at this point, Reigns is 43, and he's, you know, he's had so many ups and downs in the theater that, that when the call finally comes for him to do The Invisible Man, which of course is, you know, an enormous shock to him. I mean, to get a call from Hollywood to star in a movie. Um, when he gets the call, he's actually living on a farm in New Jersey, and he's considering, you know, becoming a full-time farmer uh, because he doesn't see any great future in the theater. But um, Whale says to everybody, of course, and of course, Universal says, well, nobody knows him. You know, he's not a star. You know, he's not like Boris Karloff, who's, you know, everybody knows, or even Colin Clive, who might be lesser known than Karloff, but is still a world-famous actor. Uh, but uh, Whale says to Universal, no, he's got the absolute perfect voice for it. He's got the right voice. He's got the right personality. I absolutely want him. And, of course, Whale's very powerful at Universal. And... Um, Reigns goes west, and he's going to star as the Invisible Man. And for him, it is a complete nightmare. (laughs) You'd think overnight stardom in Hollywood, you know, would be great. But for Claude Reigns, no. It's uh, it's a very humiliating uh, experience. Um, First of all, I mean, you consider he's in a movie in which nobody is supposed to see him. Sure. Right. I mean, I mean, the, the the great love affair actors have with movies sometimes is that you know their face is up there on this enormous screen for an entire theater of people to to look at in close up. In this case, he's not going to be seen at all, except that of course eventually turns out he's seen in the fade out when he's dead. But sure. but you know he goes through the whole movie either with you know bandages and goggles on or actually invisible. You know, and and so that's sort of humiliating in itself. Um, and um, you know, he shows up and he's all gung ho and about wanting to do these scenes. And once in a while, once in a while he goes up to Whale and he says, you know, um, maybe I can do this to be expressive. Maybe I can do that to be expressive. Maybe I can do this with my eyes. Maybe I can do this. And you know, Whale says, you know, but Claude, old fellow, what are you, what are you going to do it with? You haven't any face. You know, you, <laughs> you don't have any face to act with. You know, so we, you know, forget it. You know, just just do as I tell you and don't worry about about all this stuff. Uh, it, it's interesting. He never really got over it, uh, Reigns. He, he, I mean, it made him a star, but he never really got over the experience. There's a, 
there's a funny story uh, that uh, that uh, his daughter Jessica told me when I interviewed her for the book, and she said when she was about ten, uh, she and her father and mother were living on a farm in Westchester, Pennsylvania, which is actually not too far from where where I live here in Delta, Pennsylvania. And she said, and the Invisible Man came out in a re-release, and um, so Brains took uh, took Jessica to, to see it. And she said it was winter, so you know Brains put on a, a hat and a scarf around the lower part of his face, and and he wore glasses anyway. And he got, so he got all bundled up and went to the theater. And so, you know, he kind of looked like the Invisible Man. You know, looks like in the beginning of the movie when he shows up at the end, yeah. you know, all <laughs> with the scarf around him and the glasses and the hat. And then he said, you know, that there was a box office line, and they went up, and that, you know, Claude Rain said in that, in that voice of his that everybody, you know, recognized immediately, so, you know, I want two tickets, please, you know, and everybody says, oh, my God, it's Claude Rain, it's, you know, it's Claude Rain. And the manager comes out and, you know, orders him free tickets and everything, and <laughs> says, no, no, that's not necessary, not necessary, no, no, and all this, and, you know, and, of course, the more fuss he makes, the more everybody's paying attention to him, you know. So they said they finally... <laughs> They finally got into the theater, and the movie started. And um, as it proceeded, you know, Reigns went on giving this very long, loud, angry commentary about the making of the whole movie. You know, I mean, he's sitting there saying, you know, and, you know, before they filmed this scene, they put plaster on my face, and they put straws up my nose. And, they, <laughs> and he's sitting there raising hell, and, of course, he said everybody in the theater was turning around watching him you know, rather rather than you know watching the the, the film, so <laughs> so we had a good time that day. He got to he got to vent and uh, and had an audience while he vented. But and uh, then somebody no, remembered he that never, years later yeah, and said, never, "What we should have on DVDs is an alternate audio right. track where we have one of the <laughs> actors just sitting saying it was horrific. I had plaster on my That's face right. and straws in my nose." <laughs> It was strolls up my news. Yes, this is terrible, terrible. So, so yeah. So he, it must have been. He really must have put on a performance that day. And uh, just like I said, everybody in the theater, with you know, all the people sitting in front of him were turned around. You know, they were all watching him while he, while he sat there and uh, <laughs> hissed and carried on. But, um, but no, he was very. Uh, and and you know, I mean, it's understandable. He was, during the film, he was very insecure about, um, you know, about about this was his first movie and. Uh, you know, he, um, you know, it's a very strange role, and it's a lot of uh, demanding trick photography, and and um, he's working with Gloria Stewart, who in her high heels is taller than he is, and uh, that upset him. And uh, years ago, I talked to Gloria Stewart, and of course, she, you know, who had 60 years after The Invisible Man had made a comeback in Titanic, and um, she remembered that Claude, you know, was was quite short, and in their scenes together, that whale would arrange it so either they sat next to each other, or uh, Rain's still on the box, and she took off her high heel shoes. And, um, you know, this also would get Rain's frustrated, and he would then start to upstage her and try to, you know, play her off the scene. And, you know, Whale would say, now, now, behave, Claude. You know, can't do that. Be nice to Gloria, you know, that sort of thing. But, you know, it works. It, you know, it's funny how we were talking earlier about how sometimes the, the personal uh, things that are going on inside an actor uh, help the performance and help the movie. And in this case, I think, you know, the humiliation and the frustration and the insecurity and all these things that are going on in Claude Rains, it all kind of exploded, you know, yeah. uh, magnificently in the performance. And, 
you know, when he stands there and says, you're crazy to know who I am. You know, nobody could trill R's like Claude Rains, you know, you're crazy to know who I am. And the interesting thing, of course, is that he had a speech impediment, which meant that he was unable to pronounce his R's originally. Yeah, originally he could, and that's right, he had a very, that's right, because he figured he never could become an actor because his speech impediment was so severe that he had to conquer when he was a boy. So that was a whole other, you know, thing of baggage he was carrying with him. So, so, you know, here's this man who at this point is, you know, considered to be middle-aged and never been in the film before and, and playing this crazy part, and, and, you know, the whole film might tank anyway because it's so strange it's in, its, in its whole focus and its whole direction. And... Um, so you can you can imagine all the all the crazy stuff blowing around inside of him when he plays those scenes and you know when he throws the fake nose and the wig and the goggles at the yokels who are watching him and everything and it's it's just tremendous you know it's just a tremendous tremendous performance and um, you know, no wonder he became a star. I think that. it brings to mind that I think John Landis probably took quite a lot from uh, the opening of the Invisible Man in terms of. Uh, an American Werewolf in London, where we we get, although this is thematically it's it's a lot tighter in the sense that we've got this outsider, this person who's kind of coming in from elsewhere into this sleepy town uh, where nothing much is going on, where everybody knows one another's business, and mm-hmm. just all of a sudden everything just goes quiet, and it's it's it very strongly brings to mind uh, American Werewolf and. Uh, it's great, just a great sequence, and I think it's it's quite evocative in uh, in the sense. And as well, I think Invisible Man seems to drag uh, these films kind of out of that gothic, uh, that the gothic pretext that's been mm-hmm. in um, a lot of the, the the early horror films, and this this kind of becomes more of a kind of scientific uh, scientific fiction type. Uh, yes. type film than than a straight horror, I would say. Yes, yes, yes. Very, very good points. I think I think you're absolutely right. And of course, John Landis, being such a fan of the old horror films, I'm sure he probably had that uh, in the back of his mind. You know, when he was uh, with American Werewolf in London and with uh, with the direction that he was going with it. So um, yeah, I agree. I'd say that out of all the box set, it maybe might be one of the ones that I would go back to least. Maybe because of the one of the things that's that's brought up quite a lot when people talk about it is the with the addition of the fiance and having Kemp now as a rival love interest, it is almost like they are trying to to perfect some of the things that they maybe hadn't quite got right in Frankenstein. Whereas I am an H. G. Wells fan as well and I would really quite like to see a film just about this complete basic loner who doesn't have all these attachments. I think that it's in a way that giving him these attachments maybe humanises him a bit too much. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. It's like what they say about the Marx Brothers films uh, frequently, that that, that when... uh, the Marx Brothers, particularly when they went to MGM, that they felt they had to sort of pad the film out with romantic interest and these other things that, that so that everybody who went to see it uh, would find something they liked. I mean, for example, if somebody went to see Invisible Man and they weren't really uh, a fan of horror or they weren't really a fan of, uh, uh, of science fiction or whatever, at least they could they would see a romance, you know, a romantic triangle mm. uh, at play here that they would, you know, that they would feel comfortable with and that that would... Uh, 
uh, you know, that would satisfy them and, you know, keep them in theater. Um, but I see exactly what you mean, that, you know, frequently of a Hollywood movie of this type or this time, really, you, you, you kind of say, gee, I wish they would have one in which they just completely went overboard and didn't worry about these other kind of formulaic things to just to kind of, you know, uh, pay respect to the audience of the time. Uh, why don't they just, you know, go in a completely novel direction? And um, so, yeah, I can appreciate your point on that. Are there any films, Greg, that you can think of that, that do that, that, that kind of, I mean, The Black Cat would probably one that, that kind of jumps out at me, but I mean, are there, are there others that perhaps you would suggest where they've taken quite an uncompromising approach and followed quite a, a resolute vision? Yes, uh, you know, one I was, again, one of which is covered in the new book, The Very Witching Time of Night, is a, is a picture called Murders in the Zoo, uh, which was also from Paramount. It came out after Island of Lost Souls and um, uh, has Lionel Atwill as the star. And, and in the film, he suspects that his wife is, is being unfaithful to him, and he goes around and kills the various men who he, he, thinks, he thinks she's being unfaithful with. And, you know, the actress is presented kind of sympathetically, even though it's Kathleen Burke who played the Panther Woman, so automatically you're going to be kind of, the audience, I guess, would be kind of suspicious of her, you know, whether <laughs> she's a good girl or a bad girl, as <laughs> they would say in those days. But, it, you know, you kind of expect in the movie that, I mean, she's kind of sympathetic and likable, and you kind of think in the film, well, you know, eventually, um, you know, before anything, any harm can come to her, um, you know, uh, she'll be proven innocent and, you know, he'll be dispatched with and, 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 and everything will be happy. Well, instead, what happens is that um, about two-thirds of the way through the film, he throws her into a pond of alligators. Um, <laughs> wow. We had this, yeah, this incredible midnight feast uh, on Kathleen Burke. And, um, uh, you know, so, so it... it, it it's really, uh, uh, it must have been an incredible shocker for the day, because I'm sure most of the people who went to film thought, well, you know, uh, you know this, will, this will end up the right way. When they said this, uh, this actress, who from as far as we can tell was basically innocent, uh, is, is fed to alligators. And um, there's, you know, I mean, it's just because they have Randall Scott in it and um, Gail Patrick as sort of a backup love team, but they're, very, they're, they're, they're mainly for the purpose that they're, they're dealing with the snakes in the zoo, you know, that, that that's their major part in the film, more so than providing romance. So, so that's an exception, you know, that, that, there, there's one that's kind of, uh, kind of doesn't sugarcoat anything is murders in the zoo. Of course, the interesting thing about murders in the zoo is that it wasn't very successful. I mean, people didn't line up to see it. Um, and so I think that was the thing that people were worried about in Hollywood at the time, the producers, if they made a picture that was too incredibly, um, Grim, horrific, whatever, people would stay away. Uh, you know, they needed a little bit of of uh, softness and kindness and that sort of thing in it. Although when you think about it, you think about the 1931 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with yeah. Frederick March and Miriam Hopkins and and Rose Hobart, and that one doesn't have any any kind of happy ending either. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, he sure. kills Hyde, kills Miriam Hopkins, and then Hyde kills. Uh, his fiance's father, uh, and so you figure, you know, uh, at the end of the movie, uh, Jekyll and Hyde, the same person, of course, are is dead, um, and um, Ivy, you know, the bad girl is dead, and the good girl is probably, you know, in a state of complete nervous exhaustion uh, for life after, you know, seeing. <laughs> 
the, the horrible ending of the movie. So there's another one which doesn't really have a, a happy ending. But uh, that one, and of course that film was very successful. But but no, you 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 ask a good question and make a good point when you say that you know that that there really weren't too many films of the time. The the, the tried and true way was to give everybody a happy ending. Uh, of some kind. Uh, otherwise, the audience will leave feeling too downbeat, and you know the word of mouth won't be good. And this one doesn't really have a particularly happy ending, which uh... no, no, no. It's a, it really doesn't because he, you know, I mean, he of course he has to die from the from the uh, you know point of view of the of the production code administration because he's committed murders, so he cannot really allow a happy ending. But. Um, you're right. His, uh, you know, Gloria Stewart is very sad at the end to see him die. She loves him, and uh, she wanted nothing to do with uh, the other uh, so-called romantic lead. You know, William Harrigan, uh, who was, you know, a sniveling little coward, as which is the end of the film. Frankenstein, really. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so, so yeah, so that movie it also has something of a downbeat ending because nobody's no, nobody's happy at the end uh, of The Invisible Man. Uh, at the end of Frankenstein. You know, uh, you have that tactile ending where uh, Henry Frankenstein survived, and in the end of Dracula, you know, the the two young lovers go off together, and and end the Bride of Frankenstein. They have that special, you know, contrived ending where Colin Clive and Valerie Hobson are together, and so the formula really was to try to keep everybody, you know, keep the romantics in the audience happy. And there, there yeah. was a but, uh, sorry, there, I was just going to say there was a suggestion as well that the the very downbeat ending of the Invisible Man. Does uh, actually go back to the the tacked on ending for Frankenstein, because by James Whale getting rid of Kemp before the end of the film, and by the the very obvious fact that Griffin is going to to have to perish by the end, that it means that the the typical love triangle is broken by the fact that nobody can get the girl. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. You wonder where she's going to go from there. Uh, you know, somewhere uh, happier, <laughs> I hope. <Absolutely>. Yeah. <laughs> so hopefully, some saner existence. Uh, but no, that is that, that's very true. And it, it, it'd be kind of fun if somebody went back and made a you know they made little sequels to some of these films to see exactly where these people did go from there and and how much they did emotionally recover from what they see uh, you know happening in these horror films. Um, so, uh, yeah, good points. Yeah, I think the only series that I can think of that really ever delve into that is probably Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween. I think, because mm-hmm. they feature yeah. recurring characters. But, uh, and they really, yeah, really they shouldn't. They really shouldn't. But I, I was going to say that uh, since we were talking about Val Luton earlier on, a lot of his films don't feature the stereotypical happy ending as well. And that's that's maybe mm-hmm. one of the the reasons why those films became so iconic is that because maybe at the at the start of the the talkies, so like probably up until about the the late thirties, people were still just expecting that things would be that little bit more formulaic, and then as yeah. things became a little bit looser, then you get. Cat People in 1942, which doesn't have a particularly happy ending, you know, all the way through mm-hmm. to like Isle of the Dead and Bedlam, which both have very kind of downbeat endings as well. And you've got yes. like I Walked with a Zombie as well. You know, I, I think mm-hmm. that the, the reason why these films in particular from that period have sustained 
is that they they don't they actually do throw in surprises for you where you think everything mm-hmm. is going to work. I think quite possibly the cheeriest ending out of all of Val Luton's films might be Curse of the Cat People. Yes. And of course that was a completely reshot ending, you know, was they went back and after they completed the film and, and Luton didn't like the way it ended and they went back and and um and, and reshot it uh to, to try to get closer to what he thought it should be. Um and um you know of course there's a big debate about whether or not the original ending uh would have been more powerful than the than the later one. But um it it's it really is it's very much a, a visceral thing about how the uh how the audience decides, you know, a particular audience decides to accept a movie. I mean, for example, in The Invisible Man, they have what is, I guess, is considered by James Whale to be sort of a sight gag, a comic bit, and that is that, you know, The Invisible Man's running wild through the village, and at one point he, you know, dumps over a baby carriage, and the baby comes tumbling out. And um, <laughs> I guess, you know, some people who saw that were, you know, screamed in horror at the sight of somebody dumping a baby out of a carriage, and other people who watched it, you know, howled with laughter and said, she I've been waiting for years to dump a baby out of a carriage in a movie. You know? um, so, so, you know, it, it, it's very much in the, in the eye of the beholder uh, of, of how, um, you know, how people uh, approach movies, particularly this type uh, uh, of a movie. So, yeah. I think Griffin's ultimate downfall is that he's a little bit too Dennis the Menace throughout the film. So instead of just disappearing off and hiding so that everybody is just thinking, where can this guy be? He decides to knock over a baby carriage. He decides to pick up a rock and throw it through a window. He knocks a man's hat mm-hmm. off his head. He picks up a broom to uh-huh. reveal where he is. And you think, well... Yeah. That's that's not how I would do it. If I was an invisible man planning a killing spree, then I would I would maybe be a bit more on the Kevin Bacon. Yeah, I would yeah, I would be a bit more on the, the side of as much as I don't like Hollow Man, I do like the the fact that, that Kevin Bacon actually makes people wonder if he's there rather than make it obvious mm-hmm. that he is. <laughs> Yeah, unlike Claude Rains, you wouldn't go around bursting out into song like he does. <laughs> that's true. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a dead giveaway yeah, if you're yeah, invisible. Turns it, yeah, turn, yeah, it's exactly. Yeah, it turns the thing into a musical comedy. Uh, yeah, no, you're you're exactly right. He, uh, it, it is. It, it's um, again, it's it's this kind of. I think it's very much indicative of James Whale's personal sense of humor. That kind of crazy, uh, sure. sardonic sense of humor that he had with some of the stuff that the Invisible Man does. But you're right. He would have uh, he would have lasted a lot longer. And had a considerably longer reign of terror, I think, if he had, you know, kept a, kept a light over his bushel as far as his sense of humor and his uh, singing talent and, and a lot of other things uh, went as far as uh, as far as his personality goes. Absolutely, I, I wouldn't even have oh, run guys. away. I would have stayed at home because he's <laughs> yeah. invisible. But That's he right. decides he has, to, he has to run away to hide himself. If you don't leave the house, you're invisible anyway, well, right? Well, the thing is, if, if nobody <laughs> is looking for him in his house because they haven't seen him there, they will be out looking for him, and therefore he's got all the time that he needs to work in his own lab, and if anybody comes in, he just has to stand still and avoid them. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. gentlemen, we'll have a short break there, I think, um, and we'll be back to discuss the upcoming projects of Mr. Greg Mank and we'll be back 
after this. This is Jamie from Devour the Podcast. Do you enjoy horror commentary with straightforward honesty? Oh my god, fuck this movie. Fuck this movie so hard. Oh my goodness, you know, I, halfway through this movie I was just like, let's get this thing going. Fuck this movie. <laughs> Humor and an obvious passion for the genre. I like the cut of your jib. The ceiling, Grandma. Don't make me get out the broom. Oh, your tears are like wine. They used to call that the vapors. Cupcakes are kind of the Schindler's list of desserts. It's it's a, a pure good. I love the idea of up-and-coming horror directors taking on the found footage genre. I really, really like that idea. And that's really the worst thing you can commit as far as filmmaking is concerned, is making a film that's just average. Well, that doesn't really inspire any kind of exactly. discussion, whether it's, you know, to rip it apart or, or praise it. Then you should spend time with David and me. And Bo. As we discuss horror films from old classics. Deep Red. Empire of the Ants. Lisa and the Devil. The Baby. The Toxic Avenger. To new favorites. Absentia. Cabin in the Woods. The Loved Ones. Shadow of Death. VHS. The Woman. Check us out on iTunes or at Devour the Pod. Podcast.blogspot.com. Devour the Podcast is a proud member of the Horrorphilia Podcasting Network. Okay, guys, and we're back once again um, with Mr. Greg Mank. Greg, great to have you in the show again. Oh, I'm enjoying uh, myself hugely. Thank you. Awesome, man. I'm glad to hear it. Um, so, Greg, uh, just thank you very much for joining us and discussing the Invisible Man there. But I um, thought we could also we could move on now to perhaps discuss the feature commentaries which you have worked on over the years. So um, I know that you've, you've which ones have you done in recent years? You've done a few there. Um, yes. Yes, the very first one I ever did uh-huh. uh, was Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Okay. Uh huh. And that one was really fun to do for a couple of reasons. First uh-huh. of all, when I had done. Uh, my It's Alive book years ago, one of the people I had interviewed at that time was Charles Barton, who was the director of uh-huh. Africa Stella Me Frankenstein. So he had all kinds of terrific stories that he told me about making the film and how much fun he had. And, and um, it was funny. He used to say, you know, the real monsters in that film are Abbott and Costello. You know, they were the <laughs> ones that would, <laughs> that would be temperamental or cause problems. But he said, you know, all these, he, used to, he, remember, he, put, he said all, all three of the monsters, you know, Beta Lugosi is Dracula. Uh, Lon Chaney Jr. is the Wolfman, and Glenn Strange is the Frankenstein monster. He said they were all just as sweet as little babies. He said they were they were so nice to work with, and you know, so uh, so cooperative and and so professional. And uh, he said they put up with everything. He said, for example, uh, Abbott and Costello would decide one day on the set they don't want to have a pie fight, and <laughs> uh, they'd go out to a local bakery, <laughs> and they just bring in you know dozens of pies, and they just start throwing pies uh, at everybody. And um, uh, so, you know, did, I mean, God forbid they ever hit Lugosi with a pie. And he said, oh, no, no, no. He said they'd way too much respect for him to ever do anything like that. Or uh, they might have hit Cheney with a pie because Cheney liked that kind of thing. He was rainbunches. <laughs> but, um, but he said, uh, no, they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't hurt. Uh, they, they didn't throw one at Balin. They wouldn't throw one at Glenn Strange because he wasn't a fair target with that, you know, with that, with those heavy eyelids. Couldn't really see what he was doing uh, as far as fighting back. But, and you um, do want to mess up but the it was great for that reason. <laughs> that's right. That's start all over again. But uh, the other thing that they had that, that was so good about that was that Universal um, had uh, available uh, in one of the uh, archives out in Los Angeles, actually, uh, had available all of the production records uh, for that movie. I mean, they had every single day's uh, production report. They had all the budget figures. They had all the salaries. Uh, they had... Um, 
just everything. They even had reports from the sneak preview, you know, what, what the people wrote on their preview cards, um, which were very uh, far-ranging. I mean, some people wrote, this is the greatest comedy and horror film I've ever seen. And other people would, would write, you know, this is, this is terrible. How dare you put a movie out like this? You know, I came here to see a real movie, and I'm, you know, why would you force this kind of junk on the public? <laughs> and, I mean, it was, a, it was a very, very, very varying range of, uh, of, of uh, sneak preview reports. But uh, everything was there, so it was a, it was a very uh, fun commentary to do because there was plenty of uh, of information uh, on that film in the records, and plus all the stories that Charlie Barton had told me, and and um, uh, so it was really it was really really cool. It was a, it was a, and it's, it's a lot of fun to watch uh, something like that, um, particularly that film. Uh, the second one I did was the uh, 1931 Frederick March, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which of course is a great movie, very fantastic, very absolutely, yeah, and marvelous. And and of course uh, March won the, you know, Academy Award for his performance, uh, and uh, deservedly so. And uh, he was just he's just phenomenal to watch. So is Miriam Hopkins, a direction by Ruben Mamoulian. Uh, there was a lot of again a lot of good research material found for that in the records, particularly about censorship problems they had with the film and. And um, and all that sort of thing. That was a ball to do. I did Cat People and the Curse of the Cat People, um, which of course was fun, partly for the same reason uh, to mention what happened to Costello. In the case of Cat People and Curse of the Cat People, I had talked to quite a few of the people who worked on the film. I talked to Simone Simone, um, in a long distance uh, phone call interview to Paris, and had talked to her. I talked to Elizabeth Russell, as I mentioned earlier. Um, I talked to Jane Randolph, uh, who um, uh, played uh, Alice in the film. Uh, talked to Val Luton's widow. Um, lots and lots of people, um, you know, who I was able to talk to to get an ins- kind of inside look at those films. Also, again, all of the uh, RKO records on the making of those movies were available at archives out in California. So again, I was able to kind of get right behind the scenes as to how everything was done and how long it took and how much it cost and all that sort of thing. Um, a real fun one to do was the Mask of Fu Manchu, uh, the Boris Karloff Mask of Fu Manchu from 1932, because that is such a ridiculous movie. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it is, it is, you know, it's, 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 it's wonderful in its own way. I mean, it's, it's a magnificent comic book of a horror movie, but I mean, it's, it's, it's so silly and it really can't be taken seriously. And of course, the funny thing with that movie is that it had been trimmed. Actually, it had been edited. 40 years after it was made to take out some of the so-called racist dialogue uh, ah. that, that was in it. And then they had put the so-called racist dialogue back into it for a complete print. So that was, that was kind of a bizarre experience. And, and, and of course that movie with its you know, torture machines and, 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 and Karloff in that re- remarkable makeup and everything. It was, it was, and of course the, and the film was apparently a, a nightmare to shoot. They kept starting over and they replaced the director. And it just was, again, it was a whole horror story within a horror story, how they, <laughs> how they made that movie. Um, I did a commentary for a film, which would be interesting to horror fans because of the ending. And that was actually a, a Warner brothers, uh, social document movie called mayor of hell, which is James Cagney taking over at a reform school. Uh, for for delinquent boys, and um, it's interesting because first of all, it's a very good punchy movie, but also at the end they reshot the ending, um, in which the uh, totally you know horrible uh, director of the uh, reform school, who was there before James Cagney takes over, who comes back, uh, is chased by the boys, and they chase him with torches, 
and they chase him, you know, across the field, and they chase him up, so he goes up on the top of a barn. It looks very much like the climax of Frankenstein, uh, in which the villagers are chasing the monster, and so um, that was that was bizarre. Uh, <laughs> um, I did one for Chandu the Magician, Beta Lugosi film from 1932, which was a lot of fun. Um, I did one for The Walking Dead, uh, the Boris Karloff film, not the TV series, but the Boris Karloff film from 1936, which also was, again, great fun to do. That one was able to have, get access to all the Warner Brothers records on the making of that film, and uh, that's a fascinating movie, part horror film, part gangster film. And the most recent one I did was uh, a movie we talked about a little while ago, which was Island of Lost Souls. And uh, which is probably, uh, in my opinion anyway, the, the, the most horrific of all the uh, early 1930s pre-code horror movies, uh, maybe even more so than Freaks. Um, sure. Uh, it, it's uh, you know, a very, uh, um, still a rather frightening film. Um, it's brilliantly acted by Charles Lawton and Beta Lugosi. Um, uh, Kathleen Burke as the Panther Woman is both uh, attractive in her own unique way and, uh, and, and very tragic and moving. And um, it, it's, it's a very powerful film. And, of course, like I say, the, the theme of you know, Lawton wanting to mate you know, his Panther Woman with a, with a human male is even you know, all these years later is still a little kind of uh, you know, uh, disturbing. Uh, and, of course, you have all those, additionally, you have all those beast men in there with their incredible makeups. And... Uh, the funny thing about that film is that, you know, when you do an audio commentary, you watch the film many, many, many times because you try to make everything seem specific and you try to time your, what you're saying so it doesn't run over a scene and everything, everything that happens. And uh, <laughs> so I probably watched Island of Lost Souls probably 15 times at least in a matter of about two or two and a half weeks. Wow. And you watch that movie 15 times in two and a half weeks, and, you know, you're ready to be institutionalized uh, for a while. I mean, it, it, <laughs> you, 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 start to, you start to dream about it. You start to see it everywhere. You start to, you know, you turn out the lights at night and think there's a beast man hiding in the corner or, you know, the panther woman or something. I mean, it, it, really, it really gets under your skin. So that, was, uh, that one I really needed a rest uh, after that one was over. But, um, so but they're all the, great fun to do. That's the most recent Criterion release, is that right? That was the Criterion release. Uh-huh. Sure. They did a marvelous job. They, uh, they found uh, every single piece of the film that was still there. It had been brutally recut. Uh, in later years when it was re-released, and a lot of it was considered dialogue, considered lost, and so on and so forth. But they, they, did, uh, they did that magic that Criterion does so well. They, they went out and they found all the different missing dialogue, they found all the missing scenes, they found everything, and uh, managed to put it all back together. Um, so that what you're seeing now is what the audiences saw when it opened late in 1932, and um, it's still a very, very... It's a real powerhouse of a film, and really, uh, it, it, it's uh, <laughs> it's still a shocker. Fantastic. So, I mean, obviously, Greg, you've you've uh, came to our attention, I suppose, on the <laughs> on the uh, DVD releases originally uh, for Frankenstein, the Mummy, Bride of Frankenstein, the Wolfman. Um, would you like to say something about the process of? Uh, well, being involved in the production of those uh, those uh, sure. uh-huh. documentaries and the kind of preparatory work that you did and, and what the experience was like for you? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I'd, I'd say it was a real honor to appear on them because, as I as expressed early in the interview, I you know, loved these movies since I was six years old. That's a long time. And, um, you know, so to be able to... Oh, not to, that uh, long, Greg. Not that long. <laughs> <laughs> but, but to... Uh, 
to uh, to be able to uh, you know uh, actually uh, sit on a on a documentary and talk about them you know like that and express your appreciation for them your love for them really uh, you know it's a real privilege uh, at this point to be able to do that so that that's very cool and I have to mention that the two of the producers who worked on them who were excellent uh, David Scal who worked uh, on the um, on the original Universal documentaries and Constantine Nasser who worked later. Uh, on the uh, 75th anniversary documentaries on Dracula and Frankenstein, and and produced um, uh, most of the audio commentaries um, that I did. David Scal, in fact, produced uh, the Abbey Costello Meet Frankenstein commentary, and Constantine Nasser produced the others. And um, both of those gentlemen were are very, very uh, they're, they're real scholars. I mean, they they really love the work. They they, they take it very. Uh, they both see the fun in it, and they also see the uh, uh, you know the, the, the cultural impact of what we're doing and um, uh, what the films are, and um, uh, you know they have a, we, we we both have fun with it like like we you guys and I've had today, and we've seen a serious side of it like you guys and I have also seen today. So it, it's very gratifying to you know to uh, talk about this with people like uh, like yourselves and uh, like David and like Constantine who are kind of on the same wavelength and that who kind of appreciate these movies. Uh, and, and the impact that they still have. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun to uh, to be able to be on those uh, those particular shows and um, uh, uh, kind of emotional. You Absolutely, know, and I, th- I think it's worth saying that David Scow's uh, book, uh, oh God, the Monster Show. That's right. He's a monster show. Absolutely uh-huh. fantastic book. And, and yeah. just in terms of when you were saying about the kind of cultural side of things, that book. Um, very mm-hmm. much tracks the history of horror from a, through a kind of cultural lens, and is definitely worth, right. worth a look if you get the chance to 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 get a look at that one. Yeah, yeah, he is a very very fine writer and a very very fine researcher, and uh, and, and again an excellent cultural historian really on on how all this uh, reflects the, the the time in which it was made and uh, you know uh, impacts of the wars at the time the world how you know how the films were impacted by the World War. Uh, two audiences in the 40s, and of course the hangover from World War One, the 1930s movies, and all that sort of thing. Yeah, he's very, very good at that. And um, so, so yeah, so it's a, it's a real pleasure to work with uh, with um, such good guys uh, on on this stuff. Excellent, go. I was I was just thinking it's it's it is just like a veritable geek fest, isn't it? So it's, like some people watch these films and they just go, "It's a film. I've watched it." And we watch it and we go, "Oh, that relates to something that was actually going on in 1933 when this film was made." This is a mm-hmm. social commentary yeah. and satire all rolled up into one. And that's what I really like about the the horror genre is that sometimes you do get these kind of voices from the dark that they pick up on something that's happening and they they make it a focus of a story that's completely unrelated to it but that you can walk away kind of learning something about the just the wider world that maybe you weren't as aware of mhm that's right that's right it's a very insightful uh uh, approach that some of these filmmakers took, and that uh, you know that you can still tune into today with with that. So I, yeah, I think that's really one of the secrets of these films lasting the way they do is because of what you just said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in terms of uh, your uh, writing, uh, Greg, I mean, is there any are there any books that you would recommend to our listeners that are 
that are available that people could would be able to order. I know that certainly the Invisible Man is available. The, the Invisible uh, Man book that you've just released is available on Amazon uh, to download. You don't need to have a great deal of. You can you can download the Kindle app. You don't need any special equipment other than a computer or a, a tablet to be able to look at that. Mm. Do you have, do you have any other books that are available in that kind of way for people, or do you have books that people would be able to order online? Yes, uh, I think the um, the um, I'm sure they can still get the uh, uh, recent uh, Lugosi and Karloff book. Uh, it's called Lugosi and Karloff: A Haunting Collaboration. Uh, the extended. Uh, let me say that again: Lugosi and Karloff: The Extended Story of a Haunting Collaboration. That's the actual title. Um, but if they look under Lugosi and Karloff and, and under my name, they'll find it. Uh, that book is is available, and I and it has a I think a. Um, uh, what I tried to provide in that was a good overview of the whole uh, area we're talking about here, what was happening in Hollywood, what was happening in the world, what was happening in uh, you know, Karloff and Lugosi's uh, uh, personal lives uh, at the time uh, that all these movies were made. And, and uh, I tried to research that as exhaustively as possible. Uh, one example is that I, was try- I tried very hard to find the, the um, homes of various homes of Karloff and Lugosi where they lived at the time that they were making these films. You can sometimes tell a lot about uh, circumstances by where somebody lived at the time that they were involved in, in a particular project. And in the case of Karloff's house, um, I had an address for it. But of course, you know, it's always when you start looking around in Southern California for places that were listed as being there in 1931, frequently they're gone. I mean, sometimes you know, the houses are gone, sometimes the entire streets are gone. And so, you know, the odds of actually finding uh, the, the surviving building sometimes is very challenging, but in Carlos's case, um, one day I was out there, I did find the house where he was living at the time of Frankenstein, the time that he was making Frankenstein in 1931, and it was at the top of 100 steps in the Hollywood Hills. There was a little gate, and as luck had it, I got there on a day that they were showing the house, a realtor was showing the house at an open house, it was there on a Sunday. So the gate was unlocked and open, and I thought, well, I'll walk up and see what I can find. And I walked, and I counted the steps, and there were 100 steps going up up the side of the Hollywood Hills there. And you got way, way up to the top, and there was this old Spanish-style house, and it had a little plaque on the door, and it said, Boris Karloff lived here, you know, 1931 or whatever, wow. uh, to, yeah, uh, up there. And... Um, uh, so, you know, I, I stood up there, and of course the people were very nice. They were showing the house, let me go in and let me look out. But I kept thinking, my heavens, you know, this man came back from every night from playing the Frankenstein monster, and he would come back after wearing all that makeup, all that padding, that incredible costume, those huge boots. He would come back and, you know, park his car down there at the bottom of the hill, and then he would walk up those 100 stairs <laughs> to, to get to to get a little rest. I hope his wife had a drink waiting for him, you know, when he got to the top. Um, I think he would fly up. I mean, it was just... You know, after wearing lead boots, you take them off. You yeah, just feel so much lighter. Imagine that. I mean, it was... Uh, of all the places in Hollywood that lived at the time, he you know lived at the top of 100 stairs. So, but I mean, there, in fact, there's a picture of the house, a couple of pictures of the house in the book of from you know one of them taken out the bedroom window, looking down those incredible uh, stairs. But um, so I tried to cover everything you know from from every possible angle with that. So that book is available. Um, there is a new book um, that I'm actually just proofing the pages of that will be out this summer called The Very Witching Time of Night, which is a line from Hamlet. Uh, very witching time of night, and that has um, chapters on some of the things we talked about. It has a chapter on murders in the zoo that we talked about a little while ago. 
Uh, it has chapters on Helen Chandler, the leading lady in Dracula. It has chapters on uh, the film Spengali and the Mad Genius that both starred John Barrymore. Uh, it has an interview with Lionel Atwill's son, uh, which is very interesting. Um, uh, chapter on One More River, which was a pre-code film director, actually a film uh, filmed right during the time that the production code came in by James Whale and all the censorship troubles. Chapter on Boris Karloff and the films he made at Warner Brothers. Uh, chapter on Arsenic and Old Lace, the play in the film, a great horror comedy. Uh, chapter on Cat People and the Curse of the Cat People, all the production information from RKO. Uh, there's a chapter on Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. Uh, chapter on a film called Hitler's Madman to show how they made horror propaganda films during World War II. Uh, there's a chapter on John Carradine and his Shakespeare Company, which was, which is a, a very interesting chapter of how he was trying to become uh, the nation's top Shakespearean actor at the same time that he was making films like Captain Wild Woman and House of Frankenstein. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which was very challenging to do. Uh, a chapter on shock theater, which we talked about a little while ago, yeah. and a chapter on Carl Lemley Jr., uh, who was the producer at uh, Universal uh, during the early 1930s. Um, interview with his longtime lady friend, who, uh, which shed some light on, on his mysterious later years. So that should be out this summer. And again, that, that book is called The Very Witching Time of Night, and that will be out soon. And finally, uh, just two more plugs I'll put in here. One is the fact that um, there is a um, there will be another magic image book coming out at Halloween on the Karloff and Lugosi film The Black Cat. Superb! That I'll be writing the production Fantastic. history for. Absolutely. So that'll have the uh, shooting script and the and the uh, press book and the production history. And um, then after that, I'll be doing a biography of the actor Laird Krigar, who played Jack the Ripper in the 1944 film The Lodger. A fascinating career and a tragically short life. The man died at the age of only 31, and uh, it's a really very compelling Hollywood story uh, about Laird Krigar and, um, and uh, his uh, too, too short life. So, um, so yeah, so lots of things coming up, and uh, I appreciate the chance to plug them on your show. Absolutely, and you, you mentioned also that you had been involved in writing a few articles as well. Oh, yes. I've written for... Uh, Oh, gee, a lot of magazines, Films in Review, um, uh, Fantastique, uh, Monsters from the Vault, excellent magazine. Uh, I have an article coming up uh, with, uh, with them coming up on House of Frankenstein. I've never heard of that one. Is that, a, is that a new uh, magazine? What was that, Monsters from the Vault? Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah, Monsters from the Vault is, uh, is an American magazine. Um, the ones that, we get uh, are like Scary Monsters and uh, what's the other one? Yeah, they're very fine too. But see if you can't find Monsters from the Ball. Monsters that's from the Right, cool. Yeah, it's a very, very good, uh, very good magazine. Sure. Published by James Clatterball, and it's it's uh, always has some very good, uh, very good history uh, stories in it about about productions of films and so on and so forth. Sure. Um, so there's always yeah, there's always something uh, always something going on. It's very funny. Years ago, in in um, when It's Alive was published in 1981, I remember when the book was finished, I. I, and, and it had come out, and I looked it over, and I put it on the shelf, and I thought, well, I was very lucky to be able to write this book, and it was really fun, but now it's over, and I guess I'll find something else to do, and, um, uh, you know, in the field of writing that I, that I haven't done before. And uh, I have, but at the same time, after all these years, I'm still writing material about the old horror films, so it's stuck. You know, it, <laughs> the beat goes on, as they say, <laughs> and uh, every time I think I've wrapped it up, it seems like there's something else new to cover. So, uh so it just keeps on going, and that, and that's fine with me. It's a lot of fun. Fantastic. So, Greg, 
Thank you very much indeed for joining us. And Gil, Gil oh, did you have you. anything further to say there? No, I... I was... Gil and Roscoe, you've been great. I'm just getting the feeling that I kind of cut this man off here. What did you... No, I, I was uh, just looking at the, the whole list because uh, if anybody wants to, to go and find out, probably quite easy. The easiest way to, to go and find Greg's books is to go to Gregory Mank. That's uh, M-A-N-K dot com and there's a full list right. of them there with uh, just so many links and you know there's I'm actually I'm quite interested in the Hellfire Club book The Misadventures of John Barrymore W.C. Fields Errol Flynn and the Bundy Drive Boys that oh yes that's a good that's, that's a good R-rated one yeah, yeah. I can uh, imagine <laughs> just, just looking at the yeah, names that was a lot of fun to do yeah, yeah, there were some wild, wild characters, and uh, yeah, that's a fairly recent book that came out just a few years ago, and uh, was a lot of fun to research, a lot of fun to write, and uh, yeah, those guys were wild men back there in Hollywood in those days, and it's incredible what they got away with and what they, uh, uh, you know, they were all geniuses in their own way, in their own fields, and they were also very, uh, very tormented men, very sad men, and uh, very subversive uh, men uh, in the way that they behaved. So. So yeah, that one's a um, that one's a that one's a colorful book. So that one, I, I would suggest that one highly as well. I'm glad you pointed that one out. Yeah, because <laughs> they are unbelievable characters. You know, they are they're the sort yeah. of people where you watch their films, but they're it's it's like these days we have these kind of rambunctious <laughs> type actors, and mm-hmm. you, you think, I wonder what their actual life is like. And I bet it's nothing compared to the life of the people that you cover oh, no. in that book. <laughs> no, they couldn't even publish during their lifetimes kind of things they were doing. I mean, it was, it was you know, it all came out later. But, I mean, the, 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 the just incredible craziness that was going on uh, back in those days. And, uh, um, you know, it's remarkable. I mean, I think, the you know, it's just one, one crazy story after another. And... Um, they all used to gather at the house of this artist named John Decker, who was a, a, a remarkable individual mm-hmm. who was a, a world-class art forger. And um, when we started work on the book, his studio was still there out in Los Angeles where all these guys had gathered. Uh, and um, so the, when we started work on the book, I went out there and the lady who looted the house very graciously let us come and and visit and stay, and you could just kind of feel, you know, the energy of all these crazy souls that had gathered there back in the uh, in the old <laughs> days and, and had carried on and caroused till dawn, you know. And uh, it was very sad because we were there that day, and then when I came back the following year, the house had been sold and had been torn down. So um, it's another site in Hollywood that's gone. It's the old art studio on Bundy Drive of, uh, of John Decker. But uh, I was very grateful to be able to get in there, you know, just before it just before it disappeared, and uh, and to kind of feel those vibes that are still there, that were still there. Yeah, I mean, just don't uh, wander about using a black light, <laughs> otherwise you might run out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it it was it was you know he still had his coat of arms. It was interesting. He still had the coat of arms that the Decker had was still in the front door. So I think when they sold the house, um, the lady who sold it took the door with her. You know, as a historic uh, memento, but. But the rest of the house was completely demolished, and a new house built, and it's built where it used to stand. So, 
So too bad. That, that that place should have been preserved, if only for the uh, for the crazy energy that was still. Yeah, in there. <laughs> uh, that's because I always, for some strange reason, I always used to think that Errol Flynn was the Crimson Pirate, but the Crimson uh, Pirate was. Uh, Oh, uh, uh, Burt Lancaster. Lancaster. But it's also got Christopher mm-hmm. Lee in yeah. it as well, doesn't it, I think. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I always remember when I was a kid seeing like Errol Flynn's adventure films and just thinking, this is the man you want to be when you grow up. And it, it turns out <laughs> that, yeah, well, maybe based on his lifestyle... <laughs> Credited in the Invisible Man, isn't he? Yeah, John Carradine. He's he's, uh, he's on the phone actually with an informer, uh, uh, trying to turn in information about the Invisible Man. And Walter Brennan, who only a few years later was winning an Academy Award, uh, is is uh, has a small part in there. Walter Brennan. It's interesting. Walter Brennan won a little tangent here. Walter Brennan won three Academy Awards, and the the argument always was that he won because in those days the extras could vote in the Academy voting, and he had been an extra. So whenever he was nominated, you know, of course, for thousands and thousands of extras, whenever he was nominated for an Oscar, he would almost automatically win because he would get this enormous vote <laughs> from from the thousands of extras as he had been one of their boys, you know, back before he made it big, which is not to say he wasn't a good actor because he was he was an outstanding actor. But but, it, you know, he was kind of pre-sold for a while there because he, he had, having been an extra, he, he was going to kind of just dance into an Academy Award every year. Gang mentality. That's what it is. It's gang mentality. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was what it was. So, um, like I say, he was very good, and he he's always fun to watch. But uh, he had a definite advantage going for him back then. <laughs> Excellent. So, Greg, thank you very much indeed for joining us. We really truly appreciate it, and you've given us your time. Um, so, we just want to say thank you so much indeed uh, for spending time with us, and to thank you very much indeed for joining us. You can find out more about Greg's work at www.gregorymank.com. That's right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And we'll have a short break there, and we'll be back after this. Howdy, folks. Then you come to the right place. My name is Gary and I'm your guide to the Cinema Beef Podcast. Every episode we not only deliver film reviews, we also dismantle some of your favorite and most hated films. Sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. Hey, 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 you shut your face! If we want to hear you talk, I will shove my arm up your ass and work your mouth like a puppet! Alright, calm down, calm down. Every show I hope to have a new co-host, podcasters, and listeners alike. That's right, I'm talking to you people. I take all comers. No, slaps. That's not very nice. The only rules, well, let's ask the best cooler in the business. All you have to do is follow three simple rules. One, never underestimate your opponent. Expect the unexpected. Two, 
take it outside. Never start anything inside the bar unless it's absolutely necessary. Three, be nice. So join the insanity and please vent your frustrations. I'm available on TalkShoe, iTunes, and Stitcher Smart Radio. Remember, here at the Seven Beef Podcast, if you got beef, I've got the grinder. Okay, guys, and that was our interview with Gregory Mank. And Gil, how fantastic was that? It was brilliant, but I couldn't detect a single bit of Manchester accent about <laughs> That was Gregory Mancunian, who we're getting uh, next week. That's yeah. who it is. <laughs> But no, I, I thought that was that was great. I I kind of zoned out for some of it. Like I don't mean like fell asleep. Or I just mean like I I just sat with myself on mute, just listening to these really really interesting stories. It certainly it certainly helps to flesh out the stories that we've read and that we've heard about, but to actually speak to somebody like Greg Mank, who has had the opportunity to speak to people like David Manners and Valerie Hobson, uh, Zita Johan, who we didn't get a chance to speak to him about, but all these great uh, stars of the golden age of, of horror, um, it really fleshes out the stuff that's on the commentaries and the documentaries, and it's yep. such a great opportunity. Uh, so we want to sincerely thank uh, Greg for taking the time to to join us because that was really something special. Yeah, it was it was great, and it's you know I know it's within the nature of like a a film commentary to kind of follow a, a certain route where it's addressing things that are happening at the time. But see, to be honest, see if there if I bought a film the that Greg was doing a commentary for, and there were eleven of them, <laughs> just because of all the tangents that were possible, I'd be more than happy. <laughs> Absolutely. So it was actually our plan to. In keeping with our theme of comparing and contrasting classic horror with. Um, more modern films that perhaps shared certain themes. Uh, we'd intended to discuss uh, The Invisible Man alongside Hollow Man uh, from the year 2000, but our interview with Greg uh, has, has kind of... Superseded. It's absolutely superseded the discussion of Hollow Man, so we'll maybe just have a quick... Which uh, will actually be no... That. That'll be no surprise to anybody who listened to the end of the previous episode where I suggested <laughs> the, that we also review Hollow Man. Because you kept going, no, we're not doing Hollow Man. We're not. <laughs> have you even watched Hollow Man? I have watched Hollow Man. And what's more, I was very impressed with the special effects of Hollow Man. Right, I think that pretty much says everything that we need to say about Hollow Man. You, <laughs> were, you really were impressed so by the special effects for Hollow Man. <laughs> and you weren't. Uh, well, to be fair, the special effects for Hollow Man were effects. <laughs> That's you know, I, I just, I think that it got to a point where they were just trying to push it a bit, okay, a bit further than the technology allowed. Sure, and then it got to the point where I just kind of stopped caring. And, you know, interestingly, you know, because I really like Paul Verhoeven's work, you mm-hmm. know, like, 
what was that film he did? Uh, Robot Policeman. <laughs> I, I really liked that. Sure. And uh, and then there was Spaceman Warrior. I really liked that as well. Yep. And, you know, I, I am a big Paul Verhoeven fan and I, I think that as a satire on voyeurism, there are parts of Hollow Man that really work incredibly well sure. because you've got like, the paranoia of the people that work with them because mm-hmm. they're not entirely sure is he there or isn't he there and they're it's actually a film more about it's not actually about him being invisible mm-hmm. it gets to a point where there's just a whole section about like the the fears of the people round about him, you know, based on the fact that he's invisible, it's sure. What if he is watching? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Which, Absolutely. you know, I don't know if that was maybe meant to be uh, some sort of god analogy, where know. you know, if you think somebody is watching, you do behave a little bit better. It or, could have just know, been an excuse to have some tits and ass. It could have just been an excuse to have some tits and ass as well, but you know, I'm pretty sure that in the Bible it doesn't say, and a woman was wandering about her own apartment, and her tits and ass were on show, and then God turned up and strangled her for that. You know, so that that, ladies and gentlemen, is horrible, man. You know, I I thought that that was. where Hollow Man started to to go off the rails a little bit oh, is yeah, that absolutely. his psychosis ends up being like a, a purely kind of psychosexual thing. Ah, uh-huh, absolutely. You know, at no point does he actually kind of follow the the hopes and dreams no. of Griffin from. Sure. The, the original book or or even seem to be similar to Griffin from well, the 1930s movie. Yeah, I would suggest at the same time he does he does uh, have have some impulses that are similar uh, in the sense that he wants to be the the first he wants to have this scientific achievement and that's a that's a big driving factor uh, in his actions. But at the same but then time, he gets that within half an gets, hour. Yeah, and then it gets to the point where it is really just uh, an opportunity to uh, do this kind of bizarre male wish fulfillment uh, nonsense for the rest of the film. And Greg Grunberg, who in this film plays the character of John Everyman, (laughs) uh, (laughs) which (laughs) that's not his title in the film, but it might as well be. um, That kind of, that's, the crux of the film is 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 that it's this kind of perverse male fantasy that's played out uh and doesn't really have any of the whales that that the invisible man has there at the original invisible man has whether that's the book or whether that's the film it has lots of references to god though what does hollow man yeah because yeah. the, the you've got the the control room where it's this is god speaking you're not God, I'm God. And you're like, no, you're not, you're Kevin Bacon. Yeah, it's crowbarred in, girl. I mean, that's the thing. It's incredibly crowbarred in. It's it's flatliners by numbers, man. (laughs) 
but uh, it's it's interesting from the point of view that if Kevin Bacon did actually have the ability to turn himself invisible, then maybe he would have kept a better eye on his accountant. <laughs> so on that note, uh, we'd like to say thank you very much indeed for listening. As ever, you can find us online. Um, what is this, the bloody late 90s? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you, you can find us by going to www. Point, point your browser at www.bodaciouswhorror.co.uk You missed out the HTTP. So, bodaciouswhorror.co.uk um, and from there you'll be able to subscribe via iTunes and you'll also be able to subscribe via RSS feed I know that uh, some people have been having difficulties uh, with that so you would just use a feed reader to if you weren't using iTunes um, RSS feed will be on those... the right hand side sure, feed there down we go. beneath the thing yeah. which is much easier which is the new app thank so you very much the app, app looks glorious <laughs> Cool. So we've lots of lovely downloads of the app already, so that's good news. 1712. Um, 12 absolutely. Um, and, yeah, so you can find us on Twitter, uh, myself, at Bodacious Horror, and... At Gil Rokitansky. Both Twitter accounts absolutely. also available via the app. And Thank you very you much. Also- Thank you very much. You can also find us on Facebook. Via the app. Um, Thank you very much. <laughs> via the app. But <laughs> as I say, not everyone has an Android device and it's only available for Android. No, not everyone uh, since, has since... an Android device, but Android apps do actually uh, make up more apps than iTunes apps. So anybody that's listening going, you haven't taken care of me and my iTunes requirements... I'm sorry, I aimed myself at the bigger market. <laughs> the there more important market. The Served. better market. Served. <laughs> Where's okay. your God Guys, now? Thank you. eh? Where's your Guys, God thank now? You. Thank you very much indeed for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Please, as ever, if you would like to leave us feedback on iTunes, that would be very much appreciated. Um, if you've enjoyed your interview with Greg Mank, feel free to get along to his website and bid him welcome. Tell him, Gil, tell him that Gil and Roscoe sent you. Uh, and as well as that, buy his damn books. His most recent book on The Invisible Man is available on Amazon, both to download and for print on demand. So that's around uh, £7 for the Kindle book, and it's well worth the money because it comes with a range of production photos and as well as that, a reproduction of the script, uh, which is fantastic as well, the, the full screenplay uh, for The Invisible Man, and it's well worth checking out, as well as a full production history, as we discussed, so very very much worth checking out. So guys, thank you very much indeed for listening, and we'll catch you all next week. And if you would like to leave us a little message, not on the iTunes, I believe that there's a, an entire thing on the app for just sending us an email. There's a nap There's for a... that. Goodbye, everybody. Now, I'm away for a nap. Bye. I'm the invisible man. I'm the invisible man. Incredible how you can.
love.